The psychedelic revolution is here. If you want to integrate your visionary experiences into your purpose, get clear on your entrepreneurial path and help people while you do what you love, then this podcast is for you. Welcome to The Psychedelic Entrepreneur, medicine for these times. I'm your host, Beth Weinstein. I'm a spiritual business coach, three-time entrepreneur, and a lifelong student of psychedelics and sacred plant medicine. You carry your own unique medicine, and your medicine is what we need for these times. This podcast will help you to share your medicine so you can create transformation in the world. Listen in on conversations with psychedelic leaders, change makers, and conscious entrepreneurs who are living proof that a better world is possible when you follow your heart and live in alignment with your soul. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Psychedelic Entrepreneur. I'm here with my friend, Greg Lake, who is an attorney working in this realm. So I'm sure many of you will be very excited to hear about what he has to say and hopefully illuminate a lot of the the truth and fact from fiction when it comes to working with psychedelics, whether it be your own path or with your clients or a little of both. Um, so Greg Lake is an attorney, as I mentioned, and he is involved in a lot of, um, I, as far as I know, setting up endogenic church and churches and helping people get um, legal church status. And I'm putting that in quotes because yeah. I'll have him verify if it's truly legal. <clears throat> Greg has also written a lot of books, um, including Psychedelics in Mental Health series, Psilocybin, The Law of Entheogenic Churches in the United States, and he has a new book coming out soon, The Primary Religious Experience, Protections Afforded, Non-Lineage, and Multi-Sacrament in Churches Under the First Amendment. These are like textbooks almost. <laughs> um, and he is also the CEO and co-founder of Entheo Connect. Greg, um, I was really excited to bring you on because, of course, I think I did one podcast episode about how to get around like legality issues, mm -hmm. but I am definitely not an attorney. And um, <laughs> I'm one of those people that's like, hey, take the risk, um, which is maybe not the best advice. But tell people a little bit about how you became an attorney, what your own career path is and was, and how psychedelics played a part in your career path as well curious yeah so um you know i was a drug and alcohol addict for 17 years um you know and started using psychedelics at an early age uh, obviously not in the context that i do now um so i was introduced to psychedelics early on um went to law school and after law school uh i was uh practicing law in texas this was 2012 2013 um a friend of mine started to grow psilocybin mushrooms and uh i got very interested and involved and started to develop a relationship uh, with these sacraments um you know that was at the time that uh the nature of my experiences went from uh, you know from casual or playful to actually mystical uh and deeply meaningful um, at the time, I was addicted to alcohol and opiates, and you know, most of my experiences were like, "Hey, this is no good. You know, you're not going to go anywhere like this." And um, so yeah, so that was kind of my real introduction. When I say real introduction to psychedelic as a form of medicine or healing um, or any kind of religious use, um, 
So fast forward, I ended up uh, homeless for two years, um, living on the street, uh, in and out of jail with misdemeanor charges, and mm -hmm. finally uh, got the nerve up to go get help. Um, so I did almost three years in an inpatient therapeutic uh, uh, community, um, started in Texas, ended up here in Baton Rouge, and uh, was able to keep my law license, thank God, um, and then took the Louisiana bar. Once I graduated, I got a job here, which I still work uh, doing maritime litigation, Jones Act cases. And, um, you know, through that, when I got out of out of the rehab center, I didn't have a lot of money and was kind of struggling financially. And uh, to kind of help me hang on my sobriety, I kind of went with what I was familiar with, with the psilocybin, um, you know, kind of latched onto it and just started working with it on my own, uh, which is my preferred way to work with it. Um, and, uh, you know, through that was able to really just finish up dealing with a lot of the traumas and things that had happened to me throughout my addiction. And then once I cleared that path, then my experiences really took on a different nature um, and started kind of what I would say channeling higher frequencies. I had a full blown mystical experience back in um, it would have been probably mid 2019 and a just to say, I mean, just to keep it short, I was guided uh, and was told to write my first book that my higher path would be revealed at that time. And so I struggled with integrating the experience. Um, it took me several, several months to even kind of put together what had happened. And um, but like once I did, there were some other external signs in the universe that pointed towards writing a book. So I kind of just buckled down. Uh, and again, my first book, Psychedelic and Mental Health Series, Psilocybin, um, it's basically a compilation and discussion analysis of all the psilocybin mental health research that occurred up through February 2020, um, which a lot's occurred since then. But that's what that book covers. Um, and yeah, within a week of publishing it, uh, I was on Facebook and got asked by actually a gentleman here in Louisiana was the first one that was like, hey, we want to start up a psychedelic and theogenic church, and we understand that there's these Supreme Court cases out there and some other laws that might afford us protection. Uh, can you help us? So that's kind of where the rabbit hole here started. And uh, I, at work, my day job, I'm a trial and appellate lawyer. So all I do is legal research and writing pretty much all day uh, when I'm not in court or doing depositions. And um, so, yeah, it's just one of those things that once I started researching on it, it like it resonated with me so much that I, I just couldn't really get out of it. So it's like when I got off work there, I would come straight home uh, and just do research and talk to people and connect with people. And um, one church job led to the next, to the next, to the next. And now a little bit over uh, about a year and a half later, I've done almost 25 projects. Um, and oh right after the first of this year, I published my second book, The Law of the Theogenic Churches in the United States, which you know, my goal in that, um, and I tell you, it's just because I connected with people every day and would have to explain a lot of these basic parameters every day. I just felt like, well, maybe I'll just write a book and just explain all this, right? And then, you know, when I talk to people or they want to meet with me, I'll just give them a, a copy of the book and they can read and then we can discuss and, and talk, you know, a little bit more pointed discussions. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's the biggest compliment I've got on it. You know, people read it. They're like, man, I really feel like I at least have a foundational uh, understanding of this area of law and uh, it was easy for me to read things of that nature so it, I kind of really hit hit the mark with that book um mm. so so I started doing these projects solo um and uh I ended up partnering up with a gentleman named Ian Benoit out of Austin who is who has been instrumental in a lot of the veterans uh healing projects since their 
inception. As a matter of fact, he was the first veteran to go to uh, Mexico to do the Toad Niboga retreat down there. Um, and has since, again, been instrumental in sending hundreds, maybe if not thousands of veterans down there and to other facilities in the U.S. and, and abroad. Um, so him and I partnered up and have been doing the projects now, uh, which have now led to my third book that you say is more of a pointed discussion because, you know, a lot of the clients that I've been getting aren't necessarily tied to an ayahuasca lineage or a mushroom lineage or anything. But, you know, my reading of the law says that that's not required necessarily to receive protection for, for these types of practices. So um, I really just kind of break it down there and dig into some of the research and some of the old established researchers who say that, you know, what they realize, you know, administering LSD is that these things effectuate primary religious experiences and, you know, pretty reliably if it's done under certain circumstances. So my argument is, you know, if people get together to safely, uh, 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 you know, effectuate these types of experiences and that's kind of their primary intent, um, you know, it, it should and I believe is uh, a protected activity. Mm -hmm. I hope so. I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions about the mm -hmm. legal mm -hmm. and the churches, because, of course, that comes up all the time. But before mm -hmm. we get to that, I'm curious, um, you know, there's I know there's probably some people listening that are like, wow, an uh, alcohol and opioid addict who then ends up working with psilocybin mm -hmm. and maybe other medicines. I'm curious, did and I, I know this and I've done my own informal research mm -hmm. about how many of you have quit drinking because of <laughs> plant medicines. And yeah. it's like, you know, 500 people, uh, pretty much the large majority, except someone like me who still drinks some red wine here. And yeah, there. yeah. Um, but what about, I'm curious, did the psilocybin help you get off of the opioids and off of the alcohol? Like, did it give you the insights into like what the patterning was or what the addiction was about? Or I'm curious what, the, if there's a story around that, was there like a moment of like, aha or. Well, I tell you, so initially what it did was break any kind of illusion that I had that this was not an issue. Right. I was a highly functional addict. So in my mind, it's like, oh, no negative consequences. Everything's good. Right. Well, the they they told me otherwise. And after working for so long with them, I started to really believe it and understand it and, and accept it. Uh, but, you know, dealing with an opiate addiction and the physical withdrawal, I mean, it's I was I'm not going to say powerless, but I felt powerless to really do anything about it. Now, the interesting part of this is when I got to rehab. After about six months, when I really started to clear up, yes, a lot of these mystical experiences and visions that I have would come back to me and were helping guide me spiritually through this program because it was an extremely tough program and only the people who were really strong spiritually would make it through it. Uh, and I noticed that I was able to pick up on a lot of these principles and practices a lot quicker than the others. And that kind of also bled into me being able to process and work through my trauma uh, at a greater level and understand it at a more significant level than a lot of the people I was in there with. And um, so, yeah, that's kind of how, and, and again, it wasn't like an instant thing, uh, but over a period of time, it progressed to absolutely help me uh, overcome these addictions. And I just want to let people know that like these, these downloads we get, uh, they do stick with you and uh, they will come back at, at the proper time. I'm, I personally can testify to it. It did for me anyways. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've um it's interesting cuz I've, you know, I've been working with medicine for a long time and it, it's gotten you know there's these moments where I've gotten to these arguments with the medicine, you know, or with the spirit of whatever comes through about alcohol, um caffeine, sugar, 
packaged foods for some reason packaged foods came up a lot and i was yeah. like i don't eat that many but you know i like some chips here and there and you know there's certain things that come in packages that and it's just been interesting to see how it's had an effect even just with these very minor things like um I've cut caffeine for the most part, you know, like sugar, because I it was and I knew this on some deep level that this was really affecting my nervous system, you know, causing depression, causing anxiety. And then my drinking, um, you know, back in the days, the drinking was unhealthy drinking. And now it's definitely conscious drinking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the you know, it was like many years of, of exploring like, well, maybe I should quit or maybe I should cut back or where is this becoming? you know, an in you know, an unhealthy problem mm -hmm. versus something that's like, okay. And trying to, you know, just really be in check with yourself. Um, I'm curious also, before we go into all your legal expertise, um, do you want to share a little bit more about the grand mystical experience and how it shaped what you're up to? Like, did it kind of just tell you, you know, write a book or was this like multiple mushroom journeys that kept telling you to write a book and you put it off for two years, which was my story. Like I kept being yeah. told the same thing for three yeah. or four years and ignoring it. But no, yeah, can I, you tell a little bit about it? Yeah. Yeah. I'll elaborate on it. I mean, I, I was basically in my apartment with all the lights off dark with a headset on in my bed and I've had this fantastical vision of the ancient pyramids. And then I see like a light come out of it with a, an entity came out. Um, and then it was like, go to your living room. And again, all the lights were off and <laughs> go into the living room. And there's like Anubis standing on the wall about nine feet tall with these beet red eyes. And I was like kind of frozen up, but he was like, stay calm. And um, he didn't want me to look directly at him. So I'm like looking right here and he's off at an angle like this. And um, yeah, that's when he was just like, look, um, you're going to write this book. Um, your higher path is going to be revealed. And through that process, uh, and I tell you, I did put it off for a while. Fast forward about four months later, um, I'm at a ranch in South Texas with a friend of mine. We had a mushroom journey in the middle of this pasture at night. And um, towards the end of the journey, we go to get in the ranch truck. And like before we even get in, he goes, man, you should write a book about psilocybin. And again, I had never told him anything about this experience. And so I was like, it's it sent chills down my spine. So I was like, okay, and that, that's when I really started taking this seriously. But you know, through this process of writing this book, I started eliminating mind programs one after one. The main one being that, you know, my belief, you know, mostly bolstered by my family, that I'm only meant to practice law in this area, doing this job for the rest of my life. That's the only thing I'm gonna be good at that I'm gonna focus on or do. Like I, I got rid of that program. I said, you know. I can literally do anything I want to do. And I live in a universe of infinite possibilities. And that was probably the major mind program that was shed during that time. That's just completely opened up a whole new facet to my human experience. Um, and I'll tell you, I got some pushback from my sister on the first book. She knew I was writing it. I told her she cussed me out. She wouldn't let me see my nieces for three months. And like, I. I came to like a critical juncture where I was like, am I doing the right thing? Is this the right thing to do? You know, I almost questioned uh, putting it out there. Um, but I pushed through that time and it taught me such a valuable lesson about unconditional love and her too. She learned the same lesson about unconditional love. And um, so, yeah, that's kind of the process that that one mystical vision journey, you know, sent me on almost a whole year of, of lessons and, and, you know, shedding of programs and all of this. So yeah, it, 
you know, these things extend well beyond uh, that just singular point in time. Oh, my God, this is it's incredible because this is so much of my path, my client's path. I literally just <laughs> interviewed someone last week about you know, and asked the same question about how her life unfolded with the use of, you know, like the different medicines she's mm -hmm. working with. And it's so incredible how much of our purpose can come through this, but we're going to come up against the tests. Like mm -hmm. I was so afraid that, you know, all my friends would disown me. Medicine communities would disown me. Family would freak out. I thought there'd be authorities knocking at my door, but some, sometimes I'm still kind of like, I really hope there's not authorities knocking at my door, but I'm pretty sure what I'm doing is not illegal. But yeah. so many people come to me, especially at the beginning of stepping into this newer purpose of becoming, mm -hmm. let's say, a coach or a healer or you know, a facilitator who is maybe bringing microdosing into their healing practice. And the biggest thing is that it's like the fear of like, is this really the right thing? And how can I do this? And how can I um, not only not get in trouble, but then not piss off my friends and family or like, yeah. you know, but then there is this, I, and I'm so glad you shared this mystical experience because so many of us have had this and so many people are like, oh my God, is this just me? And when they hear this, <laughs> they're like, oh, okay. It's, it's normal. It's okay. Yeah. And it, it's, it's something we can choose to, listen to or watch for all those other signs like mm -hmm. someone else yep. that's how i became a business coach it was the same thing i just started getting the downloads and started doing it and then i didn't even know it was a thing i just knew like well i want to help people and then next thing you know everybody else is like you should do this for a living and i'm like huh <laughs> you know yeah. it's like the universe kind of guides you but we also mm -hmm. have to co-create it mm -hmm. um so thank you for sharing that's awesome yeah. so it's interesting because you are an attorney in one specific area, but then um, you're helping set up these, you know, like legal and theogenic churches. And it's it's been interesting because I've been around two people that I personally know who've set up churches in the last couple, mm -hmm. the last three, four years. And before that, there was always this um, like, you know, one place that I would work with in the U.S. would mm -hmm. make us sign a form this said we were joining a church for the night, you know, mm -hmm. but then, I, you know, and then this would come up a lot about how much are we really protected? Like, are we really in a church just by signing a piece of paper? What if we got raided? You know, is this really protected in the state that we're in? Does this vary by state? So um, can you give people a little overview of um, how, because there's so many different you know, ideas of how this really works. And then also I think it's been changing from what I understand, like certain medicines are okay and certain ones are not and certain states are and certain ones are not. Like, what would you say to this, the, you know, the regular person that's like, I want to hold a mushroom ceremony with, you know, eight people at my house. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, you know, let, let me just talk about the layers of protection real quick. So the primary one, you know, that, extends everywhere in the United States is the federal protection, which emanates from the Religious Freedom and Restoration Act. And then from there, we kind of got the Santo Dime and UDV opinions, right? Um, so that kind of lays the groundwork, you know, that the courts will accept uh, religious use of entheogens. Obviously, that's ayahuasca. And, you know, a lot of people don't feel, you know, they want a court case squarely addressing their type of practice, right? Well, we don't have the luxury to have that, okay? But 
from those two opinions, we can deduce a lot of information on, on how the courts will, will view these types of things. Um, second, yes, state laws do vary, um, you know, state by state on what exactly their religious protections are. City of Bernie v. Flores was a 1997 U.S. Supreme Court decision that said that the Religious Freedom and Restoration Act doesn't apply to the states. Uh, in response, I think 21, 22 states enacted their own legislation that either mirrors or pretty much tracks the federal legislation. Um, a lot of states, including the ones along the eastern seaboard, all have constitutions that already provide just as much, if not greater, protections for religious exercises. Um, and then there's a few states where it's kind of maybe up in the air a little bit, but for the most part, I think is 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 the whole country whole. You're pretty much protected in every state if done correctly. So, you know, let's talk about that for a minute. Well, for one, it needs to be a sincere religious belief and practice. Okay, um, so that's what I tell people I work with. First things first. Like, look, sincere. if you're not sincere, if you don't feel like this is, you know, from some metaphysical realm, you know, assigned to you, it might not be something that you're looking into, right? So, you know, generally when I talk about sincerity, what do we do to show sincerity, right? Because in a RIFRA claim. You know, all all the claimant or defendant has to show is that it was a sincere religious practice and that the government's actions substantially burdened it. So, you know, in order to show sincerity, usually what we do is we file a church at the state level, a nonprofit church. We don't send the state any of the belief statements, none of that stuff. Right. They don't even care. Just file a nonprofit church. Um, and then what we'll do in the, in the most protections flow from the statement of beliefs. So in that you have belief statements, you talk about ceremony protocols, you talk about safety protocols um, and substance handling, because the government, in order to prove their compelling governmental interest, is going to have to show either that there's an extreme health risk. OK, so we know that from the Santo Diamond UDV, it's got to be an extreme health risk. Uh, and or that you're loosely handling these substances uh, and that there's a chance that they could be diverted to non-religious use. So oh those are the two main, you know, the three main things that we aim for is that the belief statements qualify as religious, which we get from the Myers opinion. There's, you know, the first four factors really get at the heart of it. But it's like this. If your beliefs address a metaphysical reality, you know, um, it, that, that the medicine helps you contact a metaphysical reality that helps guide you uh, through through making, you know, general overarching specific life decisions, questions like that's kind of the area that we're looking at or the material that's going to show that these beliefs qualify religious uh, under the First Amendment. And so, yeah, that's generally the setup. Uh, and let me address real quick this, you know, certain medicines, certain medicines. Look, you know, I've seen some legal comments commentators make that statement, but I've yet to see one cite to an opinion that states that. Um, obviously, purely idiosyncratic views are worthy of protection. And what it means in this context is that, well, if I have an entheogenic religion that has these different sacraments, different ceremonies, different sacraments, and, and as long as there's religious beliefs attached to each of them, these specific ceremonies and medicines, and uh, you're being safe and all the other parameters are in order. My argument is, is that it very well could be a protected activity. I mean, uh, that's my reading of the law with the research that I've done, you know, and I've worked with tons of people that have multi-sacrament churches. I mean, they can sit there and tell me what these beliefs are as to each each medicine mm. um, and then, you know, can say the different ceremonies and things like that. I mean, it's going to be hard time for for a court who, and mind you this, you know, courts aren't in the business of dissecting, 
you know, these religious beliefs or practices, right? Like as long as you seem sincere and they actually rise to lower religious, they're pretty much going to stop there. Um, the courts aren't too keen to try to pick these things apart. So, you know, and, and that again, real quick, that makes the DA's layer of soul quest farcical, right? Because they try to dissect these issues that even the courts tread lightly upon, right? So fascinating. Wow. This is so interesting and helpful. And it's, it's interesting because, mm -hmm. you know, the um, the state that I live in, I, there's a lot of Santo Daime churches mm -hmm. and I always feel like, oh, they're protected. They're fine. But they still try to stay very on the DL, you know, like underground mm -hmm. and no one talks about mm -hmm. it. And there's no, you know, it's like people know but don't know at the same time. And it's always been really interesting to watch because there's still kind of that you know, that, that hush, hush fear. Um, I'm curious. And I've always wondered, cause I've, you know, I've done my fair share of, um, bringing large quantities of mm -hmm. mushrooms to Burning Man, like that mm -hmm. kind of thing on airplanes. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, like gotten very lucky, thank God. And Burning, yeah, Burning yeah, Man yeah. is also not happening. So that won't be happening anytime soon. Yeah. But I'm curious, you know, what is your take on what's the reality of, um, People like, you know, there's always this, this fear of mine, like cops are going to come and like just barge in on an ayahuasca ceremony and shut mm -hmm. it down. Um, I have yet to hear of that happening here in yeah. the U.S. No. But because I, no. I always say like, oh, don't they have better things to do? Like the opioid yeah. crisis down the street, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. but are they? Like, are there people like watching, you know, ayahuasca and, and psilocybin circles or like, do you think there's really bigger fish to fry? Like there's, you know, cocaine and heroin and everything else going on out yeah. there? Well, uh, I tell you, there's a few things I'll say about that. So for one, no, I've never heard of any reported uh, police involvement in an ongoing ceremony. Uh, two, uh, for the most part, people who are sincerely practicing, right, and have done the steps like I described earlier to like get their church in order, we have not seen any interference, mm -hmm. right? Uh, usually it's because someone is hoarding way too many sacraments yeah. uh, or, and this is the number one offender, distributing sacraments outside of the ceremony. Yeah. Um, Absolutely do never do that because that's that's where they're going to get. See, the police are looking for low-lying fruit, mm -hmm. people that they can say, oh, yeah, they definitely aren't being sincere. They're definitely distributing sacraments outside of the ceremony or they're definitely not being safe, mm -hmm. right? So if we handle those, I'm not seeing any interference. The only interference that we see are seizure of sacraments at the border and occasional knock on the door. Uh, for the most part, those turn out uneventful. Um, and, and that's on both sides where people are like, I don't know what the hell that is. And, and one thing that I've noticed is that instead of like, it's very rare that they even get people to sign for it and kick their door in, right? They they kind of go up there and it's like, do you know what this is? Blah, blah. And, and people who say no and people say yes, it's pretty much coming down to the same thing. It's that they're just like, oh, well, don't do this again. Whoop de whoop uh, and leaving. So, but there are a few cases where they've knocked on the door uh, and raided and, and, and brought charges, but those people are fighting it in court because the, the government knows this, is that if they pick on the wrong people, who have the the ability to go up and fight them in court and they start losing these battles that it's just going to embolden more and more people to do this, right? Um, and, and two, there's the Tanzan decision. So this is on the federal level and would probably be applicable to a lot of states with analogous state statutes is that if a government official, for sure a federal government official, interferes with your religious right, 
you can sue them for monetary damages in court personally. So, for instance, wow. let's talk about SoulQuest for a second. Mm-hmm. Could you imagine if the DEA went in and shut down SoulQuest uh, for, let's say, a year, and then they went in court? Now, the agents that effectuated that are going to have to pay all the money that SoulQuest lost in the interim. You know, yeah. they, they wouldn't be able to to handle a judgment like that, and they're very well aware of it. So it's it's they're walking a fine line here, and that's why we're not seeing seeing any interference. And so absent exigent circumstances that call to their attention immediately need to intervene. We haven't seen any interference. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. This, this makes me a little, uh, you know, feel a little more reassured. Mm-hmm. Um, now I'm curious, you know, I don't know if you know much about this because, you know, this has been, it's always a fine line where I have clients that are wanting to, let's say, you know, work with their clients to give Mm -hmm. them, you know, microdoses or maybe do Mm -hmm. an occasional one-on-one session. And some of my clients are located in these states where there's new decriminalization. Um, There's Mm -hmm. kind of the gray area, you know, like Oakland, Portland, um, you know, Colorado. What is the reality? Because we all know, at, at least, you know, a lot of us have known what happened with cannabis and how long things took. And there's a lot of red tape and there's bureaucracy and there's things don't just change overnight. Um, but what's the reality? Like if I live in Oregon and I want to just start giving people psilocybin in a therapeutic setting, even though I'm not a therapist, can I? Is that legal? Like, do you know how the psilocybin laws are working? Because, you know, the, in the very few places that it's taken, you know, been decriminalized or slightly legalized? You know, my, my impression, and again, I don't delve too far into these, but I have absolutely looked and read up, you know, my impression is that like gifting of sacraments of, of psilocybin is perfectly fine. Now, you know, obviously it's in a therapeutic setting where there's obviously some type of energy exchange occurring. And so what's being paid for what, um, you know, what I would say that is just kind of, carefully delineate in some type of document that under any circumstance is this going towards uh you know uh any of 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 this medicine right um that, that that's all i would say but again i just don't see where the police are up in arms and just ready to to deal with people like that who aren't distributing sacraments wholesale you know in large volumes you know obviously there's that guy in denver i think that like went on camera uh, with a mushroom grow and was talking about selling it and stuff. And they got him. He stuck himself way out there. Yeah. But I think people who kind of just uh, do a lot more low key things yeah. uh, don't, don't have a lot to worry about. Again, I would just make sure that, that it's real clear that no money that changes hands yeah. is, is for this medicine. So interesting. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I agree. I mean, I'm always, again, it's like, and I'm sure you understand this as well, is especially the last couple of years, it's like we're at a mental health crisis. People don't know where else to turn. They're hearing more and more about the healing benefits of psychedelics on the mainstream media. I mean, it's all over the place. Mm-hmm. Michael Pollan's multiple books. And there's there's not enough legal supply as in like, psychedelic assisted therapy that mm-hmm. by the way is also very inaccessible to a lot of people where it's mm-hmm. you know a thousand dollars a session or whatever it is mm-hmm. and there's kind of almost this desperation for a lot of people because even mm-hmm. i get asked very often like oh my god i've tried everything i don't know where else to turn please help me find someone and i'm like 
you know, here's, <laughs> I don't even know where to send people. I don't even know where to get yeah. it. I can't even find a therapist for myself if I want to go do MDMA and therapy. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting. So it's, there is a movement for more and more like one-on-one -on -one facilitation, underground mm -hmm. facilitation, even I've had clients that are actual therapists who have been doing mm -hmm. like underground trainings with other legal therapists, but it's, you know, it's such a weird gray area. Um, the one thing I've been asked, which is kind of an interesting one is like, well, what happens if, um, let's say, you know, someone does a one-on-one -on -one with their client and something goes wrong. Like, let's say they just get re-traumatized. Let's say it's not even physical, mm -hmm. right? Cause mushrooms, mm -hmm. you know, it's, pretty physically safe, but let's say there's just a major mental health blow up. Um, can, can that person go and like sue the facilitator? Like you gave me some, you gave me way too many mushrooms. I had a bad trip. Now I'm like feeling like crap for three months. I'm going to sue you. Like, can that happen? I know that's like the weirdest. Yeah, well, you know, and, and I'm a, I'm a plaintiff's lawyer, you know, by day trade. Um, so I know a little bit about this stuff, although I sue, we sue boat companies, not individuals, but yeah, I mean, look, you can, you can get sued for anything, literally. I mean, you can go file a petition for pretty much anything. Now, whether that's a valid claim or not, um, it's going to be a different story. And to be honest, it's going to vary state by state, but I mean, generally speaking, I mean, yeah, it probably would be somewhat of a valid claim, I, I, I believe, but again, um, here's my take on that issue, to be honest with you, is that with a proper disclaimer and waiver, um, I, I think that a court would look at it like this. It's like, well, sir, you know, you chose to consume a schedule one substance. Right. So it's like and you were warned prior to consuming it that there's possible risk involved, which are generally known. Uh, so, you know, you kind of ate this this risk yeah. you know you you assumed it that's my personal take on it if, if i were to be sitting on a bench and this kind of thing came to me that's how i would rule on it um and and that's more generally speaking from my working in plaintiff's law because it's just a very well-known risk and if it's assumed by a waiver that's that's my take and on that's that's great because that's what i always say i was like look you know even though you can't i mean it's a weird area where it's like are you protecting yourself but then i'm like Every person I've ever worked with, and maybe it's just me that I've worked with very high quality people over my mm -hmm. lifetime. And, you know, even when I do it in countries where it's legal in Peru, I'm still given a three page, you know, legal waiver of like safety, yeah. health, wellness. Yeah. We're, we're yeah. going to be out in the middle of nowhere, five hours away from any hospital. So if something happens, mm -hmm. you're taking the risk. And yeah, I sign yeah. my name every time. And yeah. that's what I've told people to do. I'm like, look, go consult mm -hmm. an attorney, you know, get mm -hmm. a proper liability, something drawn up that at least yeah. states all the risks that you're taking. And maybe that'll help something. Thankfully, mm -hmm. no one I know has ever run into this problem. And it's actually, you know, this, these are like, to me, almost a little bit urban legends. I have yet to hear of like yeah. the horrible trip that someone ended up in the hospital. I have not heard anything in the, and mm -hmm. I've been working with medicines for, you know, almost 30 years now. So, yeah. um, but I'm curious, you know, what is your opinion or, um, how do you think things are going to go over the next you know, few years when it comes to the laws changing and all this mm -hmm. movement happening and decriminalization. And then of course, like the churches, more and more people establishing churches. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, do you think we're going in a positive direction or do you think there's going to be like some kind of crazy crackdown? Um, I mean, there's more and more centers going in, even in places where mm -hmm. it's not yet legal. <laughs> what do you what do you think of this? Yeah, I mean, so I I see it as absolutely going in a positive direction. You know, I see this overall. I mean, if we look at this at the overall goal of full legalization of, you know, psychedelics and theogens, you know, you have the research front, which is pushing along at God's speed. Uh, you have the decriminalization front, which is constantly working at local levels to get these, you know, measures passed. And then you have the churches. And, you know, I say this about the churches is that for a lot of people, for most people in this country, that's probably going to be the most legal route for them to go to receive this type of treatments or, or ceremonies or experiences um, up until they get, you know, the psilocybin treatment FDA approved, right? So, and I see people every time I go to a church or a ceremony, like I see a lot of people who having mental health issues, they learn somewhere that this could possibly work for them. Uh, and then from one way or another, get connected with this place and show up. And then I go back three months later and they're there at the next ceremony, you know, and, and they're finding a lot of community there. And so, you know, overall, you know, let me break down the church front also in the legal terms. I think it's definitely going a positive direction. Um, you know, despite the DEA letter, I think SoulQuest still has a really, really good chance to get their exemption from the court. Uh, and I'll address that in my next book. Um, and then we have the Arizona Yahe definitely have a great chance to win their exemption in the court in Arizona. Uh, my law partner, Ian, are getting certified in the Southern District of Texas. We're about to start filing suit on behalf of some of the people we've worked with. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's moving. I, and they, actually, there's a big, big ayahuasca church right now I'm working on that's got almost 8,000 members nationwide that as soon as it's ready, we're going to take it to the courthouse, too, because, you know, the DEA really, and I'm sure you've heard this, has no authority to really be granting exemptions under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. It's in the statute. Um, so, yeah, it's you just have to take them to the courthouse. And so that's what people are starting to realize. Uh, and people are prepping for and and will happen. So as these cases are won, the the exemption will broaden and again empower more people. And I venture to say that as of now, I think the phenomenon of entheogenic churches in the United States is of such a nature that the DEA would have an extremely hard time uh, to go and try to really make any real progress or dent in that activity. It's just growing at such a rate. And, you know, they have very little staff at the DEA even dedicated to this. I think there's only a handful of agents in the DEA that even know what ayahuasca is. Um, so, yeah, I don't I don't see them. Eventually, my view is I think that the DEA is going to be forced to come to the table uh, and start working with people and actually doing a legitimate process where people can get their DEA exemption numbers, um, you know, without having to go through full litigation. Oh my God. Wow. I got, I got chills when you were talking about Texas, <laughs> because I know I, oddly, I know a lot of people who've been moving there the last few years, mm -hmm. there seems to be a lot of movement around the medicine community. Mm -hmm. And I was like, mm -hmm. Texas, but then, yep. it, you know, it makes some sense. And, um, there's people putting in, you know, retreat centers and, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, even where I live, I'm in New York where it's 
I feel like we're always the last state in the planet, you know, to change things. But, um, you know, even yeah. here, there's a pretty well-known um, group that's bought out a retreat center. And I know mm-hmm. rumor has it, this is part of their vision. And it's really interesting mm-hmm. because it's not even close to being legalized here, but mm-hmm. they know it's coming. So this is so mm-hmm. beautiful. I, I love talking yeah. to you. This is giving me a lot of hope for a future. Mm-hmm. Now tell people a little bit more about what you're up to, what your new book is about, and maybe they can download it soon. I think it's coming mm-hmm. out hopefully yeah. soon enough and maybe we can line it up with this podcast. But yeah, yeah tell people like what yeah. your vision for your future is as well. Well, and let me just make one comment real quick before I dive into it. Is I just want to let people know that like, you know, when we look back through history, like nothing great happens with people like hiding in the shadows and being scared. Like, you know, uh, sometimes we have, have to assume at least a little bit of risk to like really make positive change in this world. And so I just encourage everybody that, you know, to really dig down deep and and find out what it is that really drives you and your vision for the future uh, and just kind of assess with your risk, you know, uh, comfortability, uh, you know, what you're willing to do, you know, and and whatever that answer is, I I love you anyways. (laughs) Um, and so, yeah, well with me, so yeah, I've got my third book coming out again. It's on the, uh, protections afforded non-lineage multi-sacrament churches under the first amendment. I will say that I'm going to be publishing the ebook for free, uh, for donation basis only people free to grab it. If donate, whatever. Um, I just, you know, I feel like this question needs to be addressed sooner than later. Um, and I just want to get it out there to as many people as possible, as quick as possible, because I, I do feel like this is probably going to be something addressed by the courts in the upcoming years. And I want to get our stance as a community out there, you know, before the government has a chance to stake a claim. Um, so, yeah, so I got that book coming out. I've, I'm continuing to try to develop in Theo Connect, which is a platform uh, where these churches and other service providers can list. It's been a challenge. Mm-hmm. I've been funding it out of my own pocket and going from web developer, web developer, but we're, we're working every day to try to get it done. Um, and then I'll say that I just got invited in on a huge app development project for an app geared around raising human consciousness, awareness. Um, and obviously a big component of that will be the psychedelic space. It will be a platform where people can have channels. Uh, where they can interact with people to learn, transact e-commerce. Um, it's it's going to be a huge project. Um, and I think that, it, oh, and most importantly, it won't be censored, right? So oh so we'll have this app where everybody can come and commune, do video chats, things of that nature. Um, so that's that's been my most recent sign-on and one that I feel most definitely uh, is going to have a major impact in the space and something that I'm very excited to work on. I think we're going to move rather quickly and try to publish something uh, around the first of the year. So, but yeah, that, that's about it for me. And, and I also said too, that my, my law partner and I are about to kind of switch over from doing church creation to litigation. I'm um, I litigate in federal court all the time. And so I just kind of been itching to get in wow. this space and, and throw some punches and, you know, see where it goes. Incredible. I feel like you're just like this crusader. I love it. I'm like, I will <laughs> march behind you anytime you need someone there. It just sounds incredible. And, and me, me, me for you too, yeah. Beth. You know, I want to say this, you know, ever since I came in the space when I published my first book, you were just so nice. And it's, you know, publishing a book, you put yourself out yeah. there, right? And so for people like you to have been so nice and accepting and um, just to see you, and I think you've blossomed quite a bit from that time as well. And just to see your stuff grow and develop, uh, it definitely empowered me to keep pushing 
uh, on everything that I've done. And so, you know, today's kind of like a culmination of it. And uh, I'm just very grateful and blessed to be here. Well, that's why, and I love what you just told the listeners too. It's like, it's exactly what you said. Um, it's not the time to be hiding. I was in hiding for mm -hmm. like my entire life, you know, in so many different yeah. directions. And it was interestingly the medicine that just kept telling me over and over and over. And I was like, you know, it took me a while. I was like, nah, that's just my like crazy ego talking. And then I was like, wait, maybe I should start talking mm -hmm. about this publicly. And you know what? It was interesting. It was, um, I, it was totally not planned, but I'm good friends with this guy named East Forest, who's a musician mm -hmm. who does music for mushrooms and, you know, used to hold, he, he does some like online ceremonies now, but he's held some ceremonies and, He's a good friend of mine, and he, he was kind of the same thing. He was, like, kind of underground, even though it was very obvious. Um, but the the week I decided to come out and just come out and speak about this and do a summit and this and that was literally, like, the week he published an album called Music for Mushrooms that was, like, five, oh, nice, five nice. hours long, you know? And it was just <laughs> all of a sudden, I think everybody just started feeling it. Like, well, the mainstream media is starting to talk about it. Michael Pollan's yeah. published a book. Mm -hmm. I think we can all come out and the more people that share their story, like Greg's story of healing, like, mm -hmm. oh my God, I have 10,000 similar stories of like, you know, my mm -hmm. life before and my life after. And I do believe I probably wouldn't be here if it weren't for these medicines. And same with, you know, pretty much everyone in my Facebook group or everyone I know who said like, well, I've healed this or I've, you know, done that or I've taken my life in this other direction. And you know, the more we share our stories and come into our purpose and follow those, you know, like follow those downloads, follow those signs. And this is how we're going to create a better world. And I can't wait to hear more yeah. about this cool app because yeah, yes, censorship is very real. I've experienced yes. it and hopefully it, not. And on <laughs> mundane things too, where you're like, why the hell are they? So I've been censored on Facebook a few times on things that I, it just escapes me as to how this why? was. <laughs> you know anything worth worth uh censoring yeah i was censored a, a few years ago because um i accidentally used a hashtag that was like i don't know i think it was like ketamine therapy or like <laughs> mdma heals you know it wasn't anything weird um and it just that they like they have this thing called shadow banning if people don't know about it yeah you're kind of banned but not banned they just don't show your things to anyone for a few months and it's terrible um and i've been actually just taken down and brought back up with no reason and yeah i mean it's happened to pretty much everybody i know on some level even yeah. for things that are like well wait a second um i spoke about uh you know like women's sexual you know sexual you know sexuality in a woman and got banned and i'm like really <laughs> is that that's like a major issue so yeah, yeah. we're yeah, we're going to be up against a lot the next few years. But thankfully, mm -hmm. people like you are doing this amazing work. Mm -hmm. Greg, it was so awesome to have you here. We're going to give everybody links in the show notes to all your books mm -hmm. and where to find you yeah. and how to connect. And I also want to announce that my new summit is coming out in about three weeks, two and a half, three weeks. It'll be a new okay. version of Psychedelic Sacred Medicines and Purpose, where we talk about this your path to your higher purpose through the healing power of these beautiful, beautiful medicines that save lives. So Amazing. awesome. Amazing. Thank you so much for being with us, Greg. It was such yeah, an honor you, to Beth. have you here. And thank you very much. Yeah. Stay tuned next week. We have another episode. See you then.
I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you're feeling inspired, I'd appreciate it if you showed your love with a review. And check out my YouTube channel where you can find the video version of this podcast. You can also head to BethAWeinstein.com to learn more about me and grab my free business growth trainings. Remember, you carry your own unique medicine and your medicine is what we need for these times. <laughs>